Welcome to a very special episode of Disclosure. I'm Sean Boonstra, and right now we are live with Revelation Speaks Peace at the Ellie Calkins Opera House in Denver. And I thought on today's program we'd give you a little taste of what Revelation Speaks Peace is all about, so that if you're in the Denver area, you can join us. Here we were with Revelation Speaks Peace in the city of Minneapolis. Give it a listen. Welcome everybody to Revelation Speaks Peace. This is a seminar experience that began for me about 23 years ago with a small group of about eight people. And from that point on, it kind of grew and grew and grew. And now we've held this seminar on every continent except Antarctica. And that's because the penguins are not interested in the book of Revelation. I can't get an audience to come out in Antarctica, but every other continent. And for a little while, I was actually putting this seminar on three, four, five, six times a year. But now I have a day job, and so I can only do it one time a year. And so once a year, we look around the world, we pick one city to do this in. And so in recent years, we've been in Budapest, we've been in Lima, we've been in Rajamundri, a little city of about two million people in India, Los Angeles and Phoenix and Portland and Rome, Italy and Indianapolis last year. And now we have come to the land of mild winters and warm-hearted people, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, I was, I was born in Canada. Born and raised up near the Yukon border, and whenever I have visited Minnesota in February, I have always thought your license plate should say, almost Canada, because it almost is. I am so glad you have come. Again, my name is Sean Boonstra. I am the speaker for a very old radio broadcast known as the Voice of Prophecy. In fact, I believe it may have been one of the very first Christian broadcasts on the radio in the world. It went on the air in 1929 when a guy by the name of HMS Richards from Colorado went on the air on KNX Radio in Los Angeles. And I believe that over the next decade, he was one of only four religious broadcasts on the radio at all. Now, I'm sure my team will tell me I got that all wrong, but that is roughly the way that it happened. It started out as a program called the Tabernacle of the Air, and if you were listening to the radio in the 1930s, you may remember that program. Later on, it changed to the Voice of Prophecy, and now it has become a worldwide radio broadcast, and it's connected with the world's oldest, I believe, and biggest Correspondence Bible School. It was originally called the Bible School of the Air, now called the Discover Bible School. So the broadcast is actually 85 years old now, and obviously I am not 85 years old. In fact, I just joined the Voice of Prophecy 20 months ago. And one of the reasons they asked me to join the team was this seminar, which I've been conducting for a little more than 20 years now. Now, before we get going tonight, this is not the seminar or the lecture, I want to explain how it's going to work and give just a general orientation. And tomorrow night I'll give a shorter orientation and then we'll be off to the races. We're going to have a textbook in this seminar and only one textbook. The textbook 
is going to be the Bible. And the reason that I kind of just stick with the Bible is very simple. If you walk into any bookstore today and get books on last day events or the book of Revelation, you will discover that there are a lot of divergent theories, and some of them are a little weird. I mean, I'll just be honest. I've read a lot. I've read thousands of books, and some of them are weird, and nobody seems to agree. And, and here's what I've discovered. If you just stick with the text and read it, it's generally speaking the best approach, and it is amazing how clear it can become if you just read it. And of course, on occasion, I'll go back and look at what people have said historically, you know, the anti-Nicene fathers and the post-Nicene fathers and the reformers and the counter-reformers and so on. We'll look at that from time to time, but for the most part, we're going to stick with just the text found in the Bible itself and let the Bible be its own expositor, because you're going to discover there's actually enough detail in the Bible to make it very clear what the author actually originally intended. The key is you just have to read the whole book from Genesis all the way to Revelation. What we're going to do in this seminar is provide the right tools that you need to do that. We're going to give you the right frame of reference. If you understand how the book of Revelation was written, how it was meant to be read, if you understand the original context it was written in, suddenly it makes very good sense. But it's going to take a little bit of time and effort on our part because, as you know, Rome was not built in a day, and the Bible wasn't written in a day either. It took 1,500 years to write it, 44 different authors over all those years, and so it's going to take a little bit of effort on our part to really dig into it. So what we're going to do every night is I'm going to cover one of the major themes found in Bible prophecy, and I'll give you some of the tools you need to understand that theme and really understand prophecy for yourself. And I guess what I'm after by the time we're finished is for you to be able to sit down and read a book like the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel and understand it just as easily as you would understand any other book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, any other book of the Bible. I want it to be easy to read and I want it to make good sense when you read it. So we're going to touch on big themes every night, and quite a few of them. I'm going to plow through a lot of territory. And each night, we're going to build on what we covered the night before. So when we're done tonight, what we have learned, we're going to carry forward into tomorrow night. So it does become important to follow along. And I know that people are very, very busy. I've got two teenage daughters who keep me very, very busy. If it's not soccer, it's music lessons. If it's not music lessons, it's me running the boys off of our property. <laughs> they keep you. I understand what it is like to be very, very busy, but I would encourage you because this may only come to Minneapolis once in your lifetime to clear your calendar and come to as many of these as you can because we will build each night. It's kind of like building a house. You know, we'll put down a foundation tonight, and the next night we'll put up some studs and then some sheeting on the studs, and we'll hang doors and windows, and well, I guess you should put the roof on first, and then hang the doors and windows, and then we'll call in the finished carpenters and so on. And once we've gathered all the pieces, we're going to step back to the curb and look at what we built, and it'll knock your socks off. Maybe not literally. It already knocked my shoes off. I'm not wearing any because Canadians don't wear shoes indoors. It'll knock your socks off. It will take your breath away. The picture in the book of Revelation absolutely revolutionized my own life. And once you see the big picture, it is breathtaking. Our subject tonight, a new world order. I've had people come to this seminar from every walk of life. Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, atheist, Muslim. Personally, my own bias is I am a Bible-believing Christian. 
I want everybody to feel perfectly comfortable, but it is my custom to always offer a prayer before I read the Bible because it's such a profound book and has changed my life. And so if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to do that. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to stand up here and speak. I know who I am and I know where I've been. And I would have no right to say anything except that you would bless me, that you would forgive my sin, and that you would give me the ability to think clearly. So I ask most of all that tonight I would have the opportunity to put a smile on your face because I've been faithful with what the Bible says. And I thank you for that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Our topic is a new world order. And tonight I want to start with one of the biggest questions that has ever been asked in the history of humanity. And there really is no point in studying anything else in the Bible. There's no point looking at the book of Revelation unless we can answer this one question. Does God actually exist? Is there any meaning or purpose to our existence as human beings here on this planet? Or is it possible that we're just an accident, a bunch of accidental life forms that came into being by chance on an insignificant planet out on the edge of an insignificant galaxy? Do you and I actually mean anything? And is there any rhyme or reason to human history? I'm going to take you to a very unusual place to begin answering that question. We're going to go back in time roughly 200 years and visit Beethoven. This is Beethoven, one of history's greatest composers in my opinion. And he actually wrote the piece of music that you are listening to. It's kind of there in the background. This is his third symphony. It's called the Eroica Symphony. He wrote it for one of his favorite people who he considered a hero. And this piece of music might actually be one of the soundtracks of the whole universe. This piece of music actually begins to answer the question, does God really exist? Because he wrote it for his hero. He wrote a dedication on the front page of this symphony. But when the truth came out about the man he wrote this symphony for, he threw a fit of rage and he ripped the front page out and we almost lost this piece of music forever. And on the day that Beethoven ripped out the front page from this piece of music, he unwittingly gave us evidence that God is quite real. And he also completed a story that began 2,400 years before he was born. A story that began in an ancient king's bedroom. The king's name was Nebuchadnezzar, the man who built the Neo-Babylonian Empire approximately 600 years before Christ. Now this is not the ancient, ancient Babylonian Empire that you read about with the four cities on the plains of Shinar and Hammurabi, the lawgiver. This is much later. This is a renewed and renovated Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar is the man who rebuilt that empire and he ruled the ancient Middle East approximately 2,600 years ago. And one night, something happened in this man's bedroom that would determine world history for the next 2,600 years. What was it? A dream? A nightmare to be more exact. He suddenly wakes up in the wee hours of the morning. His heart is pounding in his chest. There is a cold bead of sweat running down his forehead and his eyes are darting around in the dark trying to figure out is there somebody in this room? The story records this dream in the book of Daniel chapter 2. 
Here's what the Bible says. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. A man who was scared of nothing is now suddenly terrified of a mere dream. This is a man who is not afraid of death. He has looked death in the eye many times. This is a man who is not afraid of risk. He has risked everything many times. This is a man who is not afraid of ambition. He's one of the most ambitious men in ancient history. But now he's terrified of a dream because the dream has just told him he's about to lose it all. And that scares him like nothing else could. He wakes up in the middle of the night. It's one of those dreams you have where even after you wake up and you realize it was just a dream, it bothers you for hours, for days. Well, we're up against a break. You're listening to A New World Order. We are live at the Ellie Cockins Opera House right now in the Denver area. If you live in the area, plan to join us. Come on down if it's Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, we are live there. We've got to take a little break, and then we'll come back with more of a New World Order as we presented it in Minneapolis. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Does my life really matter to God? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. If you live in the Denver area, you might want to go to revelationspeakspeace.com to find out how you can participate in the free Revelation Speaks Peace seminar, which is going on live in the Denver area right now. You can get all the details there at revelationspeakspeace.com. Here's a little taste of what you can expect. It's like those dreams where your teeth are falling out. You ever had that dream? Nobody in Minneapolis, I'm the only one in Minneapolis ever had that. How many of you have ever had that dream where your teeth are falling out of your head and you're picking them up off the floor and trying to put them back in? Nobody. Three, four. It happens to me all the time. My teeth are falling out of my head. I'm trying, and for days afterwards, I'm checking my teeth to see if the, some dreams stick with you. And he wakes up and he realizes, oh, it was just a dream. But it bothers him for hours, enough that eventually he calls for his counselors. He calls for the wise men of the Babylonian Empire. These men are known as the Chaldeans. They're magicians. They're actually called magi. It's where we get the word magician. We just came through the Christmas season. You right. remember, in the Christmas season, we always tell the story about three wise men who came from the east from the region where Babylon used to be. They were known as the Magi, they're Chaldeans. These guys are the philosophers of the empire. They're the scientists and the astronomers and the mathematicians and the priests of the empire. They're really clever guys. They're the religious authorities of Nebuchadnezzar's day. They're very talented. 
And they claim that they have a special connection to the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar calls for them in the middle of the night. And you might too if you were a Babylonian. The Bible continues the story in Daniel 2 and verse 2. So they came and stood before the king, these Chaldeans. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, the language of the day. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. Oh, they breathed a sigh of relief. We got called here at three in the morning. We thought it was a state emergency, but it's just a dream. This is easy, Nebuchadnezzar. We can handle this for you. We'll run down to the royal library and get our star charts and our books, and we'll be right back. And then you tell us what you dreamt, and we will tell you what it meant. For some reason, the king suddenly doesn't trust them. He smells a rat. He gets this feeling in his stomach that maybe these men he'd been depending on aren't actually honest. Something tells him maybe they've been lying to me for my whole career. Now that is not a good thing when you're running an empire full of subjugated people. You can't afford to have bad intelligence and lying advisors. And he did just dream that he's about to lose his empire, so he puts these men to the test in verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. You ever gone to your boss and said, I don't think my job is challenging enough. You didn't do that in the Babylonian Empire because he would lay a big challenge on you. If you guys don't step up your game, if you don't tell me what I actually dreamt, I'm going to chop you in pieces and burn down your house. However, he says, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now they've got a big problem. What are they going to do? They get into a huddle. They panic. What are we going to do? He wants to know what he dreamt. He's the only one who saw it. How are we going to do We can't fake this one, guys. What are we going to do? And they come back to the king and they attempt to reason with him in verse 7. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give the interpretation. Come on, Nebuchadnezzar. You know how it works. You gave us the employee handbook on our first day of work and it says in there, you tell us what you dream and we interpret it. Those are the rules of the whole game. Read the handbook. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time. You guys are stalling because you see my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. You think I'm going to forget about this. Therefore, tell me the dream and I will know that you can share the interpretation. I want you to pay attention very carefully to what's happening in this story. If you choose to live a lie, it's only a matter of time until somebody takes you and pushes you out in the bright sunlight and you're discovered. It's guaranteed to happen. Eventually, everybody's metal, everybody's character is put to the test. If you live a lie, you'll be found out. Brian Williams just found that out the hard way. And for these Chaldeans, the lie is now over. 
They've been faking it their whole careers and they've been exposed. What are they going to do? Because they cannot get inside the king's head and figure out what he dreamt. They can't read human minds. Nobody can. It's the reason that we seem to think we have to torture people to try and get information. Nobody can read human minds. The Bible actually teaches in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 39 where Solomon is dedicating the first temple in Jerusalem that only God knows the hearts of men. Only God can get inside the mind. Only He knows. And so these guys have a very, very big problem. And so what do they do? They give up. And for the first time in their career, they finally tell the truth. Nebuchadnezzar, it is a difficult thing that the king requests. There is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. But, but, but I thought you guys were connected to the gods, had a direct pipeline. Well, that's not quite how it works, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the king, the story tells us, blows a gasket, and you probably would too. He had trusted these men with his entire career. The Bible says in verse 12, for this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. That's it. Go get them all. Guards go out and round up the Chaldeans for their early retirement party. <laughs> Chopping pieces, burn down the house. Check, check. And as they're going around the empire, they come to the house of a young man named Daniel. The prophetic book in the Old Testament called Daniel is named after him. His name means God is my judge. And Daniel is not a Babylonian. Mm -mm. He's a Hebrew. He's a member of the royal family of Jerusalem. He's taken captive when Nebuchadnezzar sieges the city of Jerusalem. And he's marched through the wilderness, up north, back down into Babylon in chains. And when he gets to Babylon, he's not put out in the fields like the rest of them because he's from the royal family. They put him in a special retraining program. They immerse him in Babylonian culture. They actually rename him Belteshazzar after the Babylonian god Bel. And they teach him in Babylonian schools and they feed him Babylonian food and they stick him in Babylonian culture because they're hoping against all odds that this member of the royal family will begin to think and act like a Babylonian. And if he does, he will keep the rest of his people in line. But Daniel never compromises, and he is so bright. In this story, he's not even 20 years old. He rises to the top of the school, and he's so clever, so smart, so wise before he's 20 that they just count him as one of the Chaldeans. So the guard knocks on his door. Daniel, guard's name's Arioch. Daniel, what is it, Arioch? We got to go, but it's two in the morning, Arioch. I know, we got to go. What's the problem? Well, the king had a dream. Well, he has dreams all the time. No, no, this was different. He won't tell anybody what he dreamt. And when the senior Chaldeans couldn't tell him what he dreamt, he got mad, and I'm afraid I have bad news for you. What's the bad news? Well, we have to chop you in pieces. Just a minute, said Daniel. I got an idea. Take me to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 16. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. He asks for time. Now don't forget, the Chaldeans were stalling too, but the king wouldn't give them time. For some reason, though, he trusts this young man from Jerusalem because Daniel, as you read your way through the book of Daniel, you discover he has sterling character. 
Daniel is the kind of person who never gives you cause for doubt. He always stands on principle, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that in this young man, and he gives him time, something he wouldn't give his senior advisors. And that tells me something. Building character with your life matters. You can cheat and lie your way through life. You can take shortcuts your entire life, but it will catch up with you. It'll destroy you in the end. But let me tell you, especially young people, character lasts your whole life. Your whole life. The king gives him what he wouldn't give the others. He gives him time. So Daniel makes the best use of his time. He goes and gets three of his friends. You heard about them when you were a little kid. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names. He doesn't consult the star charts that night. Mm -mm. Daniel doesn't get out the astrological charts. He doesn't cut open a goat and dump out its entrails and read it like the other Chaldeans would. He doesn't go for a seance or the 600 BC equivalent of a Ouija board, whatever that would have been. Daniel does something that our ancestors used to do a lot of. Got on his knees and he prayed. Got his friends together and he prayed all night. And the Bible tells us he actually got an answer that night. He was shown what the king had dreamed. So they take him back to the king in verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. He was right. They couldn't do it. Let me tell you something. They still can't do it. They still can't do it. They're still pulling the wool over our eyes. They still can't do it. Daniel couldn't really do it either. He doesn't take a lick of credit for what's about to happen. Here's what he says. Pay attention. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Now there's the answer to our first question. Does God exist? Daniel says, yes, He does. And he's about to prove it. I want you to follow carefully because if in your lifetime you have never heard God speak, in your lifetime, if you have never seen any evidence of God in your life, that might just change for you tonight in ways you didn't expect. Follow this very carefully. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. In the distant future, He has shown you what's going to take place. Nobody can do that. The Weather Channel doesn't get it right half the time. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, God showed you the future of the world. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. Watch this carefully. You, O king, were watching. He's describing the dream now. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, a giant statue. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. It was huge. This image's head was made of fine gold. What was the head made out of, folks? Gold. No, I, I, there's more of you out there than that. I can hear you breathing. What was the head made out of? Gold. Its chest and arms were made of? Silver. This is all important. It's all going to show up in other Bible prophecies. Pay attention carefully. Its belly and thighs were made of what? Bronze. Its legs were made of? Iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You saw a giant statue. Head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet made of iron and clay. But that's not all you saw. There was more. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands 
which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. You saw a stone fly into the picture. It hit the feet of that statue and crushed the feet. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. You all know what chaff is in Minnesota, right? Yeah, you talk about this in New York or Los Angeles, they haven't got a clue what it's talking about. You've never seen a threshing floor in Los Angeles. They still think that all your food comes from Safeway. This is being recorded. They're going to show it in Los Angeles. I'm never going to be able to go back. But it's true. Well, unfortunately, it's time for another break. You're listening to Daniel Chapter 2, A New World Order, one of the most fascinating portions of the Bible. That was in Minneapolis. We'll continue it in a moment. But we are doing the same presentations live right now at the Ellie Calkins Opera House in Denver. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Right now, we are live with Revelation Speaks Peace in the Denver area. If it's January of 2017, that is. Go to revelationspeakspeace.com to find out how you can participate in person. But in the meantime, I want to wet your whistle with the same seminar as it went down in the city of Minneapolis just a couple of years ago. Here's a taste of Daniel 2 in a new world order. It hits the feet. The feet are crushed, and the rest of the statue is crushed as well. It becomes like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. The whole statue collapses into powder on the ground, and the wind blows all the residue away, and there's nothing left. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In the court of Nebuchadnezzar, everybody's holding their breath. Oh, I hope he got it right. I hope he got something right because I don't like this thing about being chopped in pieces. I look better in one piece. Everybody's holding their breath. Nebuchadnezzar leans forward in his seat. Daniel, I don't know how you did that, but that is exactly what I dreamt. What in the world does it mean? Now it gets very interesting. Daniel is about to explain it, and we're going to get our first principle for interpreting Bible prophecy and understanding it. Read the whole story. It's a simple principle. The Bible is its own best interpreter. That's really the principle. Read the whole thing, and it always explains itself. You don't have to guess at what prophecy means. You don't have to speculate. Take a stab in the dark, because it always explains itself. God has no trouble making himself known. 
So many people read a story like this and they stop right after the dream. They stop early, they don't read the rest, and they start jumping to these wild conclusions. I've read all these books by all these people. Oh, it's a head of gold. Gold, there used to be gold in Fort Knox. We don't know if there's any there anymore, but that's probably then the United States of America in Bible prophecy. And silver, that's the silver-haired wisdom of old folks. And bronze, that has something to do with coming in third at the Sochi Winter Olympics. You're laughing, but there's books like that. They put out a brand new book, another one that doesn't make a lick of sense because they didn't read the whole thing. You don't have to guess. You don't have to speculate. The Bible explains itself. Daniel's about to tell us exactly what it means. And this, what we're about to look at, is what revolutionized the way I look at the world. Daniel 2.37, he begins explaining the dream. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. The one who gave you the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, is the one who gave you your whole empire. You really think your military prowess made you this successful? You don't understand. You would have none of this if God didn't allow it. A lot of people would be surprised one day to discover that God had been there their whole lives giving them things they thought they built. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He was a great king. Wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he, God, has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are this head of gold. There is no guesswork involved. He just told them what the head of gold represents. You and this empire that God has given you, Nebuchadnezzar, it's you. You are the head of gold. It's the Neo-Babylonian Empire, roughly from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. And gold is the best description you could come up with for the Babylonian Empire. It really was the Golden Kingdom. It may have been, may have been the wealthiest empire in the history of the world. To this day, we still use the word Babylon to symbolize decadence and over-the-top living. People who visited couldn't believe what they saw. The ancient historian Herodotus went to the ruins, and in the ruins he said this place was covered with gold, and there was gold furniture in the temples. There was gold everywhere. It was remarkably wealthy, and it was remarkably influential. Today, to some extent, you and I still think like Babylonians. It was that influential. It's been 2,600 years, and we still think like those folks in some ways. They didn't invent astrology, but they grabbed it from other cultures and popularized it and passed it down to us. It's still in the horoscope column in your newspaper. Comes from Babylon. They gave us base 60 mathematics. Well, we don't use base 60 mathematics, Sean. We use base 10. We count to 10 and then we add a digit. You don't remember? Well, we count to 9 and then add a digit when we get to 10. And then when you get to 100, another digit, 1,000, another. We use base 10. Yeah, for some math you do, but you're still using base 60 because of the Babylonians. You are. How many seconds are there in a minute? 60. How many minutes are there in an hour? 60. How many degrees in a circle? 300. You, you, you told your math teacher you'd never need it again, didn't you? <laughs> 360 degrees. It was a great empire left a stamp on the world. There's a reason every culture on the planet still remembers Babylon to this day. But the question is simple. Did it last forever? No. 
Does it still rule the world tonight? No. And that's the part of the dream that bothered the king so much. Daniel continues, verse 39. But after you will arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Nebuchadnezzar, you won't last forever. There will be another kingdom. Oh, it won't be as great as you. It will be inferior, but it will absolutely replace you. Daniel was absolutely right. In 539 B.C., the Persians came into the city of Babylon under a general by the name of Cyrus, and they captured the city in one of the most breathtaking defeats of military history. The chest of silver came and demolished the head of gold. Tell you on Sunday night exactly how Cyrus pulled that off because there's an element to that story that actually helps you understand the book of Revelation. That story is woven through the way John describes things in the book of Revelation. And on Sunday night, I'll show you how the Bible predicted that a man by the name of Cyrus would conquer Babylon more than 100 years before Cyrus was born. How do you do that? Unless there's something more to the book than human composition. The Persians took Babylon, the city that everybody knew was impossible to take. And why were they able to take it? It's because world history is more than armies. World history is more than economics. There is something else going on in the background. There is somebody out there steering world events. The chest of silver defeats the head of gold. Now the question is, do the Persians still rule the world tonight? Do they, yes or no? Absolutely not. Some of you weren't sure. Do the Persians still rule the world tonight? Yes or no? No, they don't. The prophecy continues. Verse 39. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all... Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be a third kingdom. After the chest of silver, there'll be the belly and the thighs of brass. Now, students of history, you tell me. Who defeated the Persians in 331 at the Battle of Arbella? Does anybody know? Alexander the Great, absolutely. The Macedonian army, the Greeks. And they established the next empire in the Mediterranean basin that runs from 331 B.C. to 168 B.C. It was one of the fastest conquests in the history of the world. Alexander conquered 2 million square miles, conquered 20 million people. He did it in four years flat, on foot before he was 32 years old. He marched his army all the way across the Mediterranean basin, all the way over to India. And when he saw the ocean in India, history tells us he actually wept because he thought he had run out of world to conquer. The soldier said, well, if that's the end of the world, can we go home? He said, sure. And they married a bunch of local girls and started on their way back home. And on their way back home, they camped by the ruined city of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar had had that dream all those years before. And Alexander, one night as his men are partying, dies in the night. We're not 100% sure what happened, but the most likely explanation is he drank himself to death. He choked on his own vomit. Because while he could conquer the whole world, he couldn't conquer himself. Gone. But Daniel was right. There was a third empire, the Greeks. Now, do the Greeks still rule the world tonight? No. Their philosophy does, but their armies don't. There's another empire. Verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Now, students of history tonight, you tell me, who defeats the Greeks in 168 B.C. at the Battle of Pydna? Who was it? It was the Romans. 
Absolutely. It was the empire that was ruling the world the day Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They're the empire that brought crucifixion into the New Testament era and they crucified Jesus. They were a fierce, disciplined army that changed the face of our planet forever. We may still think like Greeks, but you and I to this day still behave like Romans. Our legal system, our politics, we inherited it all from them. I don't know if you've ever read that big thick set of books, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Did you have to read that in school? It's like seven volumes. It must be 5,000 pages. Because in the 1700s when he wrote that thing, he knew you only had enough money to buy one set of books in your whole life, so he wrote everything he knew in that one set of books. And I read my way through it because I had no choice if I wanted to pass. And Edward Gibbon did not really believe in the Bible, but I found something interesting. As he's describing the rise of the Roman Empire, he describes it like this in the 1700s. The images of gold, he wrote, silver or brass, that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. Ah, he said he didn't read the Bible, but somebody's been reading Daniel chapter 2. End of the dream? Not quite. There's more. There are feet. Daniel says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Now, is that true of Rome? Yes, it is. Rome first divided into east and west. By the time you come down to the time of Constantine and Diocletian, there are actually four emperors, two in the east and two in the west. And then it explodes to seven emperors. You've got Maxentius, who has the Senate declare him an emperor in Rome, and it splits up even more. But it gets worse than that. It's not just the East and West split. By 476 AD, the West utterly collapses. And now the dream moves to the toes. It says, as the toes of the, of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. It mentions the toes at least twice in that chapter. Now this dream shifts to the Western Roman Empire. Now, why does it focus on the western half of the empire? You're going to see that on a coming night. It's going to show up in other prophecies of the Bible. There's a deliberate reason that Daniel is focusing on the west. He now mentions the toes. And we know that after 476 AD, after the last western Roman emperor, the empire broke up into pieces, general categories of barbarian tribes. And these are some of my ancestors. I am a direct descendant of barbarians. My ancestor probably ate your ancestor at some point. We are the barbarians. Way up here in the north, we had the Angles and the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons, which eventually became modern-day Britain. Then here in this green zone, we had the Franks, who expanded a little bit further south, and they became the French. Down in the orange, we've got the Visigoths. That means the Western Goths. And they were still living there in Spain by, oh, about 732 in the Battle of Tours. They were still living there. And the Goths had the region that eventually becomes Spain. Over where there's Portugal, we had a tribe, a group of tribes known as the Suevi. In, in, in the area where Switzerland and Austria and some of those places are, we had the Burgundies. Way up north here, we had the Alamanni. And they expanded north and became the nation of... Germany, and to this day in some languages we still call the Germans the Alamans or the Alamanni. Here, over here, we had the Lombards. They eventually moved south down here into Italy and became the Italian nation. And you still hear the word Lombard around, right? You heard of Vince Lombard. 
Lombardy, right? He's a Lombard. He's from that region of the world originally. Then we have the Ostrogoths, the Eastern Goths. We have the Hurrieli, and we have the Vandals down in North Africa. They were so fierce to this day when somebody defaces your property, we call them a Vandal. It breaks into these ten categories, these ten groups, after the Western Roman Empire collapses. Now here's where it gets really good. What you're about to read has literally guided the course of world history ever since Nebuchadnezzar dreamed it. It has determined exactly who wins wars. It has determined exactly who sits on thrones. And it proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that somebody or something is guiding human history. God is about to speak. Here's what it says in verse 41. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. They will intermarry. But they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. What's Daniel saying? He's saying the Western Roman Empire would fragment into pieces and that they would try and put it back together. They would intermarry. They would try to mingle. They would try to put it back together, but they will not adhere to one another. They will never succeed in reuniting the Western Roman Empire. Period. And history tells us now, 2,600 years later, that Daniel was absolutely right. Let's go back. Let's look at European history. You told your history teacher you would never need this stuff either, but here it is. When Queen Victoria was on the throne of England, she was called, her nickname was, the Grandmother of Europe. Do you know why they called her that? It's because for so many years, the royal families of Europe had tried to marry their kids to each other, trying to build alliances and reunite the Western Roman Empire. And, and because of that, by the time Queen Victoria is on the throne of England in the late 1800s, she is literally related to every single other head of state. They're all relatives. They were literally mingling the seed of men. Oh, we can do it. We can put it back together. But it didn't work. In fact, the 20th century after Queen Victoria proves to be the bloodiest century in the history of Europe. World War I, World War II. We are still living with the borders that were drawn after that. All right, one more quick break before we're up for today. You're listening to A New World Order. Go to revelationspeakspeace.com to find out more. I'll be right back. Creation. Evolution. Where did the world come from? Where did you come from? Were you created in an instant? Did you evolve from another animal or life species? These are issues that are discussed in classrooms, textbooks, and sometimes around your break table at work when the conversation suddenly turns serious. These kinds of questions are answered in our free Discover Bible Guides. These 26 beautifully illustrated guides cover all the major themes of the Bible and they answer some of the hardest questions of life. You can get your free copy just for the asking by contacting me. Go to VOP.com and click on the tab that says study. That's VOP.com, the tab that says study. Or phone me, 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides, available just for the asking. And here's the ending to A New World Order. Go to revelationspeakspeace.com to find out more. But let's go back further in time. There are a lot of big names we could mention, but I only have a few minutes left. 
So I'm just going to touch on a few of the biggest ones. Charlemagne, king of the Franks, 768 onward, becomes the king of Italy in 774, but in 800 something big happens. They name him the Holy Roman Emperor. Here's the new emperor of Western Rome, the first one since it collapsed. They called him the father of Europe. They said he would bring lasting peace, but did it succeed? Almost. He went up north. He attacked the Saxons. He attacked the Germans. He went all the way up to Denmark, and he was starting to pull it together. And then he thought, I'm getting old. Who am I going to pass the empire on to? I'll give it to my sons. But his sons died before he did. And he goes, oh, now who am I going to give the empire to? I'll give it to my grandson. But I don't. he's so young, he's going to, I've got another grandson nobody knows about. That's literally how this happened. I got another grandson nobody knows about out there in the field. He gets another grandson and he dies and passes it on to these young men who can't run it and Europe goes back to war. Why? Because Charlemagne's not clever enough? Sure he was. Why didn't it succeed? Because God said they will not adhere to one another and if God says it, you're not going to overturn it. You can't defeat it. About 700 years later, we have another Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, 1519, he's elected. People were desperate for unity in the 1500s. Germany was split. The Reformation was going on. The princes were fighting with each other. He manages to expand his empire to 4 million square kilometers, and he almost does it. And then all of a sudden, Charles V gets gout. Well, you say gout, no big deal. No, he can't go to war anymore. He can't lead his troops. He's limping around. I wish I could go. I got gout. And if that wasn't bad enough, then he gets malaria, and he dies. Why didn't he pull it off? Because he's not a great warrior? Yes, he was. Had five horses killed underneath him in battle. He was great, but he couldn't do it because God said they will not adhere to one another. And if God says it, you're not going to change it. Louis XIV, he's the sun king, king of France. He was so arrogant, he didn't say, I run the state. He said, I am the state. Under him, France becomes the greatest military power in all of Europe. I know that younger audiences, they say, France was the greatest military power in Europe because everybody jokes, oh, French always wave the flag of surrender. That wasn't true in the 1700s. The greatest military power in Europe. The conditions were right to reunite the empire. And then all of a sudden, Louis XIV makes a bad decision. He tries to force Spain and France back together artificially, and it starts a war that gets out of control. The wars of Spanish succession, 1701 onward. He sends all of his tallest, biggest men into that battle. And so many of his tallest, biggest men die on the battlefield that I've seen historians who estimate that today the French population is still two inches shorter than they used to be because so many of the tall people died off. Why couldn't he do it? Well, I know one reason he couldn't do it. He wore high heels. You can't go into battle in high heels. You're going to get a heel stuck in the mud or something. You can't fight like that. You know the real reason he couldn't do it. God said they will not adhere to one another. Now we come to Napoleon. He's not a king, he's a general. He marches all over Europe and he's getting close. He almost pulls it off, but he's also arrogant. He gets full of himself. And there comes the day he wants to crown himself the emperor of Europe. And the pope shows up to put the crown on his head. He says, I'll handle that myself. Takes the crown and puts it on his own head. I'll declare myself the emperor of Europe. Word goes back to a man by the name of Ferdinand Ries. He's Beethoven's secretary. He says, Mr. Beethoven, we have a, a problem. That symphony you're writing, that you're dedicating to Napoleon Bonaparte, he just declared himself the emperor of Europe. Napoleon was, or Beethoven rather, was crushed. He said, I thought he was going to bring liberty to all of Europe. Here's what he said. So he, Napoleon, is no more than a common mortal. Now too, he will tread underfoot all the rights of man, indulge only his own ambition. Now he will think himself superior to all men and become a tyrant. 
He rips the front page out of that symphony. We almost lost it. There's still a copy in a museum in Vienna, a second copy that has Napoleon's name on it, but Beethoven scratched his name out. Napoleon failed. When Napoleon died in misery, Beethoven told everybody, I've already written his funeral. It's the piece that you heard at the beginning of this evening. Napoleon, the terror of Europe, almost does it, but then he goes into Europe with 600,000 men and loses most of them. Then he goes into exile, he comes back out and goes to Waterloo. You know what happened at Waterloo, he loses. So he's exiled a second time to St. Helena and he dies miserable and alone and friendless. Why, because he wasn't smart enough? Sure he was. He failed because Daniel said they will not adhere to one another. Kaiser Wilhelm, World War I, 20th century now. England is actually losing World War I. And they panic and they contact America. They say to Woodrow Wilson, we need your help, you've got to come over. We're losing to the Kaiser. And Woodrow Wilson said, not my problem, not my war, I'm not coming. Germany gets wind that England is talking to America and they say, we've got to do something to keep America busy in case they get interested. So they fire off a telegram to the president of Mexico. It's known as the Zimmerman Telegram. It was encoded. And the telegram said, listen, if you invade America, if you take back New Mexico and Texas and Arizona, we'll send you money and ammunition and we'll help you win. You join us, said the Kaiser. Somehow Britain intercepts that telegram and somehow they manage to decode it and they call up Woodrow Wilson again and they say, guess what happened with the Kaiser? He's trying to invade you through Mexico. And Woodrow Wilson gets so mad he joins the battle and the Kaiser loses the war. Coincidence? Not a chance. They will not adhere to one another. There's a young soldier in the Kaiser's army. His name's Adolf Hitler. In 1918, he says, I'll finish what Napoleon started. I can't handle the defeat of Germany. I will build an empire that lasts a thousand years. He called it a Reich. I believe that Hitler knew he was defying God too. In 1941, he wrote this. See, my people, we do not need anything from God. We do not ask him for anything except that he may let us alone. We want to fight our own war with our own guns without God. We want to gain our victory without the help of God. Dies in a bunker. Why? Lots of reasons, but the number one reason, they will not adhere to one another. Soviet Union tried it. At one point, they controlled one-third of the Earth's geography, one-third of it, and they kept bumping up against Eastern Europe and never made any further progress. Why? They will not adhere to one another. They're still trying it now. The newest attempt has been the European Economic Union, but they're having all kinds of problems. They've been paying attention. The first flag they flew had 10 stars on it. Why? Because they were going to reunite the 10 fragments of the Western Roman Empire. But it didn't work out, did it? Some nations won't join the alliance. Others aren't allowed to join. Some countries can't keep their debt under control. Greece goes bankrupt. Portugal is following quickly behind. Some other countries are also in trouble. They still might salvage an economic alliance, but I'll tell you one thing I know for sure, based on 2,600 years of accuracy in God's Word, they will not reunite the political Western Roman Empire. It can't be done because God says it can't. He's never wrong. And does that mean that there'll never be another world empire? Does that mean there'll never be a new world order? Sure there will. Because the Bible actually says one more thing. There's still the stone that crushes the statue. Verse 44. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, in the days of these kings, we're in the ten toes now, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever.
There is one more kingdom coming. It's different. It's incorruptible. It'll never need to be replaced because human beings don't set this one up. God does. And when does that happen? Jesus drops a little hint in the prophetic chapter, the 25th chapter of Matthew. He says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Everything in Daniel 2, except for this, has already happened. It's all in the past, except for this. Is there a direction to world history? You better believe it. History means something, and it's headed somewhere. The question is, what are you banking on for your future? Everything Nebuchadnezzar built, gone. Everything Cyrus the Persian built, gone. Everything Alexander built, gone. Everything the Romans built, gone. Everything I build, goes. Everything you build, goes. It all goes. It all blows away in the wind. What are you banking on for tomorrow? I look at my life, I know there's got to be something better than this. Got to be something better than this. I remember being overseas one time away from my family, and I got sick. They say it was the swine flu. Remember the swine flu? Tried to avoid it, but when you're on an airplane sitting next to somebody with the swine flu for eight hours, sometimes you get it. And I'm sitting on the other side of the planet, 13,000 miles from home, and I got sick, and I have a fever, and I'm shivering, and I don't speak the local language, and I go out in the streets, it's pouring rain, and I find a pharmacy, and I can't talk to the pharmacist, I can't even get aspirin. I got back to the little miserable room that I was staying in and I sat on the mattress that was as hard as concrete and I sat there shivering, miserable. And the whole time I sat there, I thought, but I've got a home somewhere else. I got a wife, I got kids, I got a warm bed somewhere. I have never felt so homesick in my life. It's horrible, the hotel's noisy, you can't sleep. Homesick, eventually the fever broke. I went home and I got over it, but I can tell you I'm still homesick because this whole planet is sick and shivering. Look around you. For most of the planet, it's a miserable existence and God has seen it. He says, I've let you run your experiment for a while, but I've got something better coming. I will blow away the kingdoms of this world. Look at the planet. North Korea is still acting up. China redrawing portions of the ocean. Crimea in a virtual state of war all the time. The Middle East rising up again. The Bible tells me that God sees it and he's going to put a stop to it. Let me ask you, are you homesick? Would you like something a little better than what we built? Everything has happened. And Jesus really is coming. If you're so inclined, please join me while I pray. Father in heaven, what great news to find out you're bringing us somewhere and that our planet is not spiraling out of control, that there's a purpose and direction and that you have a plan. We want to be there. We're homesick for that kingdom. And my prayer tonight is come quickly, Jesus. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And that is it for a New World Order for right now. But we are live in the Denver area. If you live in Colorado, come check us out at the Ellie Cockins Opera House. For more details, go to revelationspeakspeace.com to find out how you can register for this free seminar. It'll only come to the area once in your lifetime in all likelihood. So I hope to see you there. Until next time, I'm Sean Boonstra, and this has been Disclosure. Disclosure.